Acts chapter 24. Let us read verses 10 through 21, beginning in verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, Forasmuch as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question by you this day. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise this morning because you have been so gracious to us to give to us your written word, your written revelation. We thank you that according to your providential plan, you have preserved it for us through the centuries. And by your grace, you even gifted men to translate it for us into our language. As your word spreads, and as the church of Christ is built by him, we thank you that you have given it to us and that you have not left us in darkness. Lord, this morning as we study the word, as we hear it preached, though we know we have great responsibility to hear it, to believe it, and to live it. If we don't, we know we are more accountable, more responsible. We even know that unbelievers that hear the word and reject it, it would be better for them if they didn't hear the word. That is how serious we know this is. And for us as believers, the more light we have, we know the more is required of us. So what we pray for this morning is that as we study and hear the word preached, that the Holy Spirit would work mightily among us, apply the word to us, and give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts to understand, to hear, to believe, and to walk according to the truths of your holy word. For your glory we ask this, and we pray 
In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Well, good to, good to be gathered together again on the Lord's Day morning, amen, a day that he indeed has set aside for us. And uh, more than that, if I could just say for one moment, um, it is Mother's Day. Uh, America is celebrating Mother's Day today. And so just wanted to say thank you to all of you mothers out there, amen, those of us who have had children. And uh, I'm talking about the ladies, of course. And um, what a great appointment what a glorious office that God himself has created, amen? And uh, boys, we see our nation attacking, the leaders especially, attacking that which God indeed created, that which is in the mind of God and comes from the mind of God. I'm grateful this morning, amen, for that glorious designation that he has certainly given to the ladies this morning. And uh, I'm thankful for a great wife, and my wife said this morning that... I, I, if I can confess this before I get into my sermon here, but uh, she said, boy, what a, what a great opportunity. What a great teaching moment for our children. And I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it is such a pleasure for moms to be good godly servants. Amen. Something you don't think about very often, but our wives who the Lord has given children to, they are indeed great servants of God, raising up their children and the admonition of the Lord as uh, the men are out working. And what a glorious thing, ladies. So thank you very much. Uh, and even if the Lord has not uh, uh, seen fit to allow you to have children, you still play a great role in the lives of possibly nephews and, or nieces and those sorts of things. So thank you very much, amen, again, as we consider the Lord's word on what a mother is and what a mother should be doing this morning. Well... Well, that being said, as we take up our Bibles again together this morning in the book of Acts, the 24th chapter, we remember here that the Spirit of God has indeed led Luke to write a most, if you will, glorious outline, a orderly outline in this chapter. Now, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been here, I think, uh, for about 23 years, brethren, I think something like that, amen, but but it's uh, at least it's not like uh, Jonathan Edwards was, right, uh, it took him, I don't know, nine years, ten years, twelve years to, uh, to preach through one little book in the Bible. So we're not, uh, not quite like that. But what an amazing thing that we have learned as we have been examining, if you will, this morning, the, the inspired church history that, again, is God has preserved here for us this morning. And as, again, as we get here into our text, we remember from last Lord's Day morning, two Lord's Day mornings ago, uh, verses 1 through 9, we see there that the Jews were bringing some charges against Paul. Amen. This is what they were doing. And so we examined that last week. We saw that there was a, the Bible calls him not a lawyer, but an orator, someone who speaks rhetoric. And all of us, amen, can certainly understand what that, what that means, right? It, they're, they're speaking in such a way, they're speaking in such a way that has very little value. Amen. And so that's what we saw. We, we saw the Jewish uh, Council had hired their, their uh, hitman, if you will, to come and be an orator, to be a smooth, silver-tongued devil to bring these charges against Paul. Now, this morning, as we get into verses 10 through 21, we'll see here again that Paul now is responding to the charges that were brought in the, in the early verses 1 through 9. And then 
Lord willing, next week. It is a stunning thing to see uh, the rest of the chapter then, how Felix responds to Paul's message. In fact, the Bible says there that he is trembling in response. And so we see that the words of Paul that he was speaking that we're going to see here this morning, the Holy Spirit was indeed working, and he did indeed take them words deep down into Felix's heart. In mind, when you hear the gospel and you respond fearfully and trembling like he did, um, there's the spirit of God truly working uh, in a man's or a woman's heart. And so this morning, as we begin in verse number 10 there, we're going to see the Apostle Paul again, just some incredible things. And uh, may our attitudes, brother, and there's, there's some things that we learn from the text, right? We always want to exegetically, what is the text saying to us? But there's some application, amen? And so as Christians, we want to see this morning, what is the Bible saying? And then how then can the Lord, the Holy Spirit, apply that to my own heart? And the first thing he says here in verse number 10 is something that all of us should pray the Spirit of God would give to us. Look there, if you would, at verse number 10. The Bible says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Well, as we, again, have been going through the book, we know that Tertullus, right after he had brought the charges, the governor beckons to Paul to speak. And uh, he got done spewing his rhetoric. The governor says, Paul, go ahead and get up. And immediately what Paul does is he goes on the offensive. Amen. This is, again... There in theology and in biblical teachings, if you will, there is, as we see here, the word apologia, which means that Paul, again, here is giving his defense. Literally, that's what it means. And so he's apologetically standing before Felix about to give his defense. And he begins, first of all, by acknowledging that Felix had for a long time, many years, judged the nation that he is uh, has been taken to, which unlike Tertullius, is not flattery, but a historical fact. And again, brethren, we saw the character of Tertullus. Paul here, there is no flattery. Paul is just simply stating facts. And our religious affections are drawn throughout the text, brethren, that Paul does indeed rest and recline upon the truth. Isn't that a wonderful thing that as Christians, brethren, we can simply recline, we can rest, we can believe, we can trust in the truth of what God says. It's an amazing thing, brethren, as we are going to see this this morning. In fact, he is delighted. Paul is delighted. He is cheerful. He says to answer for himself, to give this apologia, knowing that the truth and the facts will indeed acquit and exonerate him. In fact, that word cheerfully draws our attention, brethren. Again, this is what I'm saying. We should always, amen, have this, ask the Spirit of God to allow us to be as Paul sets this example, cheerfully, what does that mean? Literally to be well-minded, to be of, if you will, good spirits. In fact, Paul has, I mean, over and over again, as the Lord is fulfilling that promise that he made to him, that Paul's going to stand before kings and before governors, and he's going to bring the gospel into the very palace itself. Paul has an amazing habit, an amazing, if you will, spirit that God has given him, because look here, if you would, he says, I, I think myself happy. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm cheerfully standing before the governor, finally, as the Lord had promised. Look at here in Acts chapter 26. I want you to see here again. As he, again, is given the opportunity 
the opportunity to give his defense, to preach the gospel unto the kings and to the governors. Look what he says here in chapter 26 as he uh, is going to be standing before King Agrippa because he gets moved on. Paul preaches here and then God takes him by his providence over and stands before King Agrippa. And look what he says. Verse 1, then, then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. There's that word again, defense. I'm giving a, an apologia. I'm speaking. I'm giving an answer for myself. Brethren, we as Christians should always, as we've looked at, we should always be ready to what? To give an answer for the hope that we have. Amen. This is, again, something that every, not just the pastor, not just the elders, every Christian should be prepared. Every Christian should be a scholar in the word and be able when someone comes up and says, why should I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the Spirit of God maybe working on them and drawing them and God himself might be drawing them? We should be prepared to give an apologia, a answer, a defense for what we believe. I watched a sermon earlier this week, and uh, it was stunning. Um, he was preaching to his church because he had so many people asking him, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Brethren, every Christian should know what happens when we die. You know why? Because the Bible tells us what happens when we die. Amen? As a Christian and as an unbeliever, there's no, there's no, there's no smoke. There's nothing in the way. The Bible's very clear. But he's preaching to his church because he had so many. What happens when we die? Well, brethren, we should have an answer for all of that. Look what he says there in verse number two. I think myself happy, king. He was so, again, he's standing here before Felix. He's just cheerful. He is of, of a good mind and of a good spirit. He says, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy and blessed. That's literally what that word means. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things where I'm accused of the Jews. So again, Paul's attitude is not one of shrinking back. It's not one of, ooh, I'm scared. It's one of great, if you will, great confidence, because he is indeed a child of God who knows the word of God. And he says, I'm happy. I'm so grateful I can stand here before not only Felix, but also King Agrippa. Now, brethren, this is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. And it's always tied, really, a lot of times. In fact, in the book of First Peter, you remember there's five chapters. And if I could ask you this morning... What is the theme in each one of those chapters? What is one of the words that keeps coming up over and over again in all five chapters of 1 Peter? You know what it is? It's persecution. It's suffering. In fact, Peter has to address it because Nero's there, and he's doing the things that he's doing to Christians. And Peter has to tell him, look at here, brother, and turn with me there quickly. Again, Peter uses the same word amongst all of this persecution, all the things that are taking place in Rome at that time. And this is what Peter has to say. Just like Paul, there's, a, there's an attitude of confidence, an attitude of, and, and brothers, listen, sisters, listen. When, when somebody's confident in the word of God nowadays, we're called arrogant. Well, he's arrogant. Well, some people are arrogant, but there's a difference between being arrogant and being confident in the word of God and believing what it says. If you believe what it says, you'll be confident in it, Amen. A pastor who would get up in front of someone and say, well, I don't believe the whole Bible. No, every word. No, every word. Every single word. Now, I may not understand it. And boy, oh boy, believe you me, my brain's not that big. It's pretty small, actually. I barely made it through, through well, uh, high school and a little Bible college. 
But it's a stunning thing when the Spirit of God works on you. And you believe the Spirit of God gives you that gift to believe every word. And we're going to see that here. This is what Paul gets into in the text. But look at here, brother. And again, this idea of being blessed. It's the idea. You know the Beatitudes? Remember that? There's a Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And there's Beatitudes, brethren, all through the book of Revelation, which deals with what? His second coming, which deals with the great tribulation. It deals with all of these things. And yet, all through there, John, as he's led by the Spirit of God, keeps saying, blessed are you. Blessed are you who read and hear. Blessed are you who do. Blessed are them who die in the Lord. Blessed, blessed, blessed. This is the idea here. One of, if you will, to be well-minded. Look what Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse number 14 there, if you would, with me this morning. The Bible says, again, keeping in mind every chapter, he's addressing persecution and suffering brothers, which we have all over the world. We don't yet, but it's coming. I'm convinced of that. Unless you compromise, unless you turn away from the word of God, you'll be left alone. But if you stand in the word of God, it's coming. It already has to some degree. Look here at verse 14. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. There's that word again. There's that, that word of being of good cheer, being of a sound good mind. No matter what's taking place concerning the Bible, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the gospel, concerning the truths that it contains therein. Look what he says. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason uh, of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience. Again, we're going to see this. This stuff's tied to Paul. Paul himself speaks of his conscience this morning. We're going to see that. Every good, faithful, one who is, has great fidelity to the word of God can have a clear and good conscience. Peter says the same thing. Happy are ye, blessed are you when you suffer for the things of Christ. And having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed, falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God that ye suffer than for well-doing than evil doing. Again, Paul's addressing the brethren who are being persecuted greatly. Now, we think persecution is someone calls me a Jesus freak, he's a Bible thumper, whatever it is in America. But when you have your brothers and sisters being lit up on lampposts, like Nero was doing, this brethren comes to life. This is what he's talking about. Happy are ye when you're persecuted for me. Amen? Look, he says it again. Look at chapter 4, just a couple of minutes. Look at chapter 4, look at verse number 12. He again is encouraging the brethren, as we see Paul this morning faithfully in his fidelity towards God and towards the word of God, he just says, hey, I am in a great place. I am of a good mind. I am surely of a good spirit with the opportunity to stand before kings and governors. Look there, if you would, at verse number 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. See, Americans, we would think it would be strange if we got persecuted heavily like our brothers do over in China and India and some of these. We would think that's strange. To Peter, that wasn't strange. That was a normal thing. This is what they were doing to Christians. That's not normal. Don't think it's strange because it's not. We do because we think, again, someone calling us a name is persecution. That's, that's just, brethren, the very edge of what I believe, again, is coming. 
Look here if you would. But rejoice, verse 13, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with what? Exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, there's that word again, happy are ye. Happy are ye of a good mind, of a good spirit, because you're being persecuted for the name of Christ. What does it say? For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. So again, this is what Paul is doing. He's standing before the governor, and all he can think about is, I'm so grateful that I've been given the opportunity to stand here, and not only am I grateful, I'm cheerful. I'm so thankful that God would allow me to stand here and to preach unto you. Brethren, what an opportunity that would be if old uh, Governor Burgum called you up, said, hey, Brother Dean, will you, can you come and preach to me? And old Dean rolls in there, and he's just as confident, just as sound as can be, standing there like Paul. I'm so thankful that God would give me the opportunity. This is what Paul is saying. He's so thankful, so grateful that, Paul, that God would allow him to do that. Paul is cheerful. He's literally well-minded and of good spirits. He's happy and blessed to be standing before Felix and making his defense. Now, let's look at his defense. He's thankful to be standing there. He's happy to be there. What is his defense? Look there, if you would, back at Acts chapter 24. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. He lays out for us his defense. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 24. Look at verses 13, or 11, 12, and 13. He says this, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, I want you to see if you see a word that I saw when I read this text. There's one word that just keeps popping out in this text. Pop, pop, pop. It's the first word in verse number 12. And they neither found me. Now listen, brethren, we see this five times in this text. Paul is completely denying all of the charges. Look what he says. Verse 12. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither rising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. Look what he says. Verse 13. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Again, he's standing here and he is denying all of the charges. It's an amazing thing. He, Paul here simply, again, states another fact, a truth that Felix, you know, you, you know full well that I've only been here 12 days. Remember what they were accusing him of? They were accusing him of causing a riot. Do you remember whose um, uh, custody he was in when he first got to Jerusalem? Remember, now this backs up a little bit. But when he got to Jerusalem, whose custody was he in? He was in Felix's custody. They handed him over, and he's in the governor's shed there hanging out with Felix. He knows full well that Paul did not start a riot. There's not enough time for him to start a riot yet, although he, there were some riots. And remember, we looked at that. It was not Paul who started. It was the Jews who did not like the gospel. This is what we see. In fact, he says that the, really, the reason he came to Jerusalem was to worship at the temple, not to be a, remember what they called him, a pestilent fellow, not a pest, not a troublemaker. I came here to worship at the temple, an amazing thing. Paul here flatly denies every one of their unholy accusations. In fact, as I said, we notice that he uses the word neither in our text five times in doing so. What does the word neither so mean? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. What does neither mean? Listen to this definition. 
nor this, nor that. Not one or the other. Not this one or that one. None of them. So what Paul is doing here, he's absolutely flatly saying, there's nothing. Not this one, not that one, not this accusation, not that accusation. None of it is true. None of it. It's a stunning thing. In fact, again, verse 12, look there. Verse 12. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man. In other words, Paul was not there fighting with anyone. I, I completely and wholeheartedly deny all of it. Look at verse 12 again. Neither, he says, verse number 12, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, which means he's not inciting any kind of riot of any sort, which he was being accused of. This is what they were trying to do. See, they needed to get him in, if you will, against the Pax Romana. You know what the Pax Romana, you remember that, right? The peace of Rome. And as soon as they could accuse him of doing something against the state, because they were unable to get him for, and we're going to see here, violating any Jewish laws or the law itself at all. They were trying, again, to get him for insurrection. They were trying to get him for causing riots. They were trying because when you broke the Pax Romana, it was a death sentence. You were immediately done away with. And this is exactly what they're trying to do. These Jews are trying to do that to him. Now look there, if you would, verse 12 again. Neither in the temple nor in the city. In fact, look at verse 13. He just flatly says, neither can they prove the things which of they now accuse me. He is saying, neither can they prove these things. Not this one or that one. It's an amazing thing. None of them. And then look at verse 17, 18, and 19. Again, he continues there in our text. Look there. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the multitude nor with the tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had aught against me, or else these same here say if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. Again, Paul, where are his accusers? Where are they? They're nowhere to be found because there is none. There's no accusations that can be proven, not a thing. And Paul simply stands there before the king, so grateful, so thankful. In fact, he does it again. He uses this terminology. Look, if you would, over in Acts chapter 25, standing before Festus. Look there again. He simply just flat out denies and uses the exact same terminology. Look at verse number 6 there of chapter 25. And when he had tarried among them for more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea. And the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jews stood around about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Again, we see Paul here. This is why he's so cheerful. This is why he has such sound mind, because he knows that the truth, the truth of Scripture and the truth of the facts will indeed exonerate him concerning these false accusations. He simply, again, brethren, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's hard sometimes when accusations are made, when people are railing against you. And believe you me, if you're a pastor and an elder in the church, that happens quite regularly. And all you can do is rest in the Lord, rest in his truth, rest in the facts. Believe that God will indeed exonerate you as someone who is, in fact, telling the truth. This is what Paul is doing. But look at verses 14 
15 and 16, after denying all the charges, Paul says, there are some things I will uh, cop to. There are some realities and some truths here that I will indeed confess before you, but these accusations I will not. But the following truth, brethren, again, he lays it out there. I'm going to deny these accusations, but I will indeed confess to you that I believe these things. This is what we should always do, brethren. Look there, if you would, verse 14. But this I confess unto thee. See, he's denying all the charges, and then he says, but there's some stuff I will confess to you. I will say, yes, I wholeheartedly believe this, that after the way which they call heresy... So I worship the God of my fathers. That's an important statement, again, that Paul makes right there. We've seen it before in the book of Acts, but he makes that. Believing all what? Things written. (laughs) Paul believed in the plenary and verbal inspiration of Scripture. You understand that, right? He believes all that is written. Everything. The whole thing. From, well, at that time we had the Jewish Scriptures. I would agree and be with Paul on that. Aren't you? That you would believe every word, all the words written. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. All of them. Just like Paul says. I believe all the things that are written. Everything. Every last one of them. And brethren, that is a gift of God. God has to give you that. Or you know what you'll do? You'll guess and second-guess God's word. You'll say, well, yea, hath God said. I mean, the, the old trick of the devil himself. Paul says, I believe every word. Do I understand it all? Nope. You know what we do then? When you don't understand Scripture, when you're reading Scripture and you don't understand it, you know what you do? You ask the Holy Spirit of God to give you wisdom and put you in line with Scripture. You don't put it off to the side and say, I don't believe it. You don't understand it. Just like there's a lot of things. I'm finite. So are you. God is infinite. But when we come across those things, we have to believe, even though I don't understand it, I believe it's true. Amen? I believe all that's been written. That's what Paul is saying here. I believe everything that's been written in the Jewish scriptures. He, in fact, gives us, again, the buzzwords, if you want to use them that, use that word, that terminology. They're not buzzwords. It's simply a declaration. What does he believe? Look what he says there. Again, brethren, as we are looking at this text. I believe all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? Well, it's the Old Testament text of Scripture. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just go down the list. At this time, they, you know, he's believing in the Pentateuch. He says all the things that are written in the Pentateuch, in the Proverbs, in the Psalms, in the prophets, I believe it all. So do I. I pray you do, too. Look what he says there as we continue there. Verse 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Amazing, isn't it, brethren, when you consider this? And herein do I exercise myself. Listen, brethren, he says all of that, and this is what he ends up with. Every Christian, every preacher, every pastor, every Christian should be able to say this. The reason I believe everything that's written, because I believe it's true. And what does that do for you then? Look what it does. 
Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense. Before who? Before God. You know, God is the preacher's first audience. You understand this. God is our first audience for the preacher. What the preacher says, he must be sure that he's in align with what God says and that it pleases God, not what men think. See, preachers today, they won't preach certain things because they're afraid the guy with the big billfold is going to run out the door because he doesn't like it. Shame on you. You think God can't supply a couple of bucks? You believe he saves your soul and you don't believe he can supply a couple of bucks for the church? Oh, brethren, be faithful to the word of God. You want to know why we're in such trouble? Why our nation is in such a soup-filled mess? Because the churches, most of them have compromised. They've caved. They've said nothing. Some of the conservative, more Bible-believing ones have been quiet way too long. There's no such thing. You realize this historically, right? In our Constitution, you know, when everybody says separation of church and state, you know that's not in there, don't you? You understand that. No, we must be faithful. We must be faithful men and women who are not afraid of the gospel, who are not afraid of God's word, even though sometimes we don't understand it. We must indeed be cheerful and of a sound mind and of a good spirit, ready to defend and give an answer for that which we certainly believe. Again, in our text, Paul denies all the charges in the earlier portion of our text, and here he confesses, Oh, he says, I admit, I confess that I worship the God of my fathers as a follower of the way. That's how they liken themselves to Christ, to the Christian back in those eras before they were called Christians. They called it the way. He says, I'm a follower of God. I'm a follower of the Jewish God. Now, brother, this is so important, again, as we see in our text, how Paul keeps bringing it back to the Jewish scriptures, which would be the Old Testament. Amen? That's what it would be. He says, I admit that I worship the God of my fathers as a follower of the way which they call a heresy, a sect. And as we have already seen, the phrase, the God of my fathers or the God of our fathers, we've seen it over and over again in the book of Acts, is a familiar one to the Jewish accusers. What is Paul saying? Peter and John used it in chapter 3. Amen? We are indeed preaching from the text of the God of our fathers. Peter and some other apostles used it in chapter 5. Stephen uses it while quoting Moses in chapter 7. Again, what is he saying to them? The God of my fathers, the God of our fathers. We talked about it in Bible study this morning. Context, context, context. You know, the fathers. Who were they? Paul uses it here, openly confessing and admitting to worshiping. Listen. The one same true God that they do. And this is the thing in our text. You must remember now, these Jewish people who were accusing Paul believed in the God of the Old Testament. But something's missing. And it isn't just faith. Faith is missing as well. But there's another thing missing that we're going to see here. They believed in the God of the Old Testament. second thing, as we have seen in verse 14, Paul confesses to is believing everything written in the law and the prophets. 
all the things as I have said. He again uses a very well-known description for the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets. This again draws their Jewish minds to what they believe. What they believe. Again, it's not that they don't believe them. There's a segment missing in what they believe. You know what's missing? Is the fulfillment of those scriptures. They don't believe in the fulfillment of them. This is where Paul got saved. He believed in the God of the Old Testament, the Jewish God of the text, and then he, God, miraculously, as we know, in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, God opened his eyes, saved his soul, and he says, oh yes, that's what that scripture says. Oh yeah, I believe that. So Paul then believes in the fulfillment of those scriptures these men have read over and over again, and they don't believe it. This is the difference between Paul being saved and them fighting against God. It's an amazing thing. It really is a stunning thing. In fact, listen to what our Lord said. Look, turn with me, if you would, to the author who is also the author of Acts, the author Luke himself. Look at Luke chapter 24. Look there with me, if you would, for just a moment. And again, brethren, this is... Throughout Scripture, we saw it in Malachi. We, we, we see it throughout Scripture. What did they always search? What were they always searching for when they would, they're looking for, we talked about Elijah to come this morning in Bible study. They're, waiting, they're still waiting today. They read the book of Malachi. And every Passover, there's the chair sitting empty waiting for who? For Elijah to come. They literally believe that Elijah, the real Elijah, was going to come, but they don't believe in the fulfillment of it. You know why? Because who was John the Baptist? He was the Elijah who was to come. That was a fulfillment of that text. There they would never believe. They would not believe because they did not believe in the fulfillment of it. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of many prophecies. And this is where they're at. They just cannot, because God has not opened their eyes, to see the fulfillment of it. To be able to believe like Paul and be saved. But this is what they searched. Look there, if you would, at Luke chapter 24. Listen to what our Lord said. You know, red-letter edition of the Bible, you know, and all that. The whole thing should be red-lettered, but here we go. Look at Luke chapter 24. Look what he says. The Lord Jesus himself. Where does he go? What does he point them to? The pastor's thoughts? Ooh, you don't want to hear my thoughts most of the time. To the pastor's understanding? Sometimes I don't understand. Jesus himself points his apostles, those to whom he would raise up, all the men there. He points them what? To the word of God. Where we should point people. The word of God. Look here now what he says. Jesus himself says this. Look there at verse number 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be what? Fulfilled. That's the word, brethren. That's what they do not believe. All this thing, this thing concerning the cross, concerning my crucifixion, concerning my sinless life, concerning the, the sacrifice that's going to appease God's wrath, all of it was fulfilled in him. And when one believes that, 
One then trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. One believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Unto what? Unto salvation. For with the mouth one confesses. And with the heart one believes. Those two are always tied together. Many people confess. But not many believe. Those two are tied together. Always. What you utter. Remember when I preached a few weeks back? Romans chapter 10. The mouth and the heart, they are tied together. Many say they believe, but not in their heart they don't. This is what we have here. This is what we're seeing. Look what he says there. Look what Jesus says. The words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, all the things that must be fulfilled, which were written, they were edged, they were scribed down in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. See, he gives us a glorious picture of the Old Testament right there. Right? The canon of the Old Testament. He lays it right out there. The law of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It goes on and on and on. He says the prophets, Isaiah, Micah. Think of it, brethren. All of them, they're all tied there. Jesus brings them together. Okay? And the Psalms. Yeah. The Psalms. All part of the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. All of which, brother, listen. These men who are accusing Paul believed. But they did not believe the fulfillment of it. Again, this is the issue. This is the problem. This is what's happened. It's an amazing thing. In fact, look at John chapter 1. Again, keeping in mind that Paul points them to Moses. Paul points them to the prophets. Paul points them here to the scripture. This is what Jesus pointed them to. Now, look at what uh, we see here in John chapter 1. Again, look at verse number 40. And the reason, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. I'm trying to point you to scripture. Do you understand that? I'm trying to point you to God's word. Last night, we sat around and all of us gathered down in our family room down there and... Uh, the last thing they wanted to hear from me was my thoughts. So we got the Bible out, didn't we? We read the Bible. We read our text. We read our text together and talked about it, prayed about it. Amen? This is where you point them to, not to the pastor. Now, the pastor can be a good example. He should be in his home. He's the father, and he should be for the people in the church. You should live out what you believe, right? Isn't that what John said, First John? Hey, if you say this, then what should follow? The actions. Do you realize in First John, he says that six times? <laughs> six times in the first chapter. If you say this, then this should follow. If you say this, then this should follow. What we say, again, is tied together. There is no separating, brother your lifestyle from the gospel. Do you understand that? We live in a world today where you can allegedly confess Jesus. No change happens. You can be a sinner and just live the way you are. Now, am I a sinner? Yes. You don't want to be around my thoughts sometimes when I'm driving. But it's the lifestyle, brother. It's the lifestyle. The word of God must and will correct you if you are a child of God. We had a family come here and for two weeks. The first week they came, that we were preaching, and after the service, 
She goes, well, that was a good sermon. You know, and you got to be careful, right? No, we're not looking for that. She just couldn't believe that we actually preach out of the Bible here. It's a stunning thing that he would open the Bible and then actually preach out of the Bible. And I touched on sodomy that first week. Well, as I do, I verse by verse through the Bible, brethren. I'm not moving from it. The next week, Paul addressed it again. And you know what she did? She got up and walked out in the middle of the service. And I'm looking, I'm going, oh, okay, well, we must have hit some kind of a, the Holy Spirit must have hit some kind of a nerve here. And in reality, what happened was her son was a sodomite. And she could not deal with this truth, with the truth of the word of God. And brethren, all of us, all of us can be definitely pricked in the heart in one way or another concerning the word of God doing that to us. And you know what you do? You don't get up and walk out on the, on the church meeting. You pray and ask God, God, please, get my mind right. Get me right with this. Because you change, your emotions change, and so do I. That's why the Bible must be front and center. It must dictate you. It must dictate what you do. It must. There must be a lifestyle of it. Not that we're sinless, because we're not. Can you imagine, brethren, think of this for a moment, what that's going to be like when you don't wake up in the morning and desire to do something against God. That, that's going to be something. It really is. But look here, John chapter 1. Look at verse number 40 there. Again, where do they go? One of the two which heard John speak, John was there preaching, Behold the Lamb of God, he's pointing to Christ. And one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And when he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus, excuse me, beheld him, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now look what he does. Look at verse 45. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom my imagination consists of, of my thoughts, my thoughts. No, look what he says. We found him where? Where did they find him? of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did what? Right. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He pointed him right to holy scripture, which never changes. It's a stunning thing, brother, and it really is. It really, really, really is. Paul was indeed confessing to them that he had not deviated from Israel's true ancient faith. He hadn't. And being a Christian did not make him an apostate Jew. Not at all. But rather he believed in the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He believed unto the saving of his soul. This is the difference. This is what Paul did. Now look there at verse, Acts chapter 24. Look at verses, verse 15 and verse 21. We'll tie them together. Look at Acts chapter 24. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> look what it says as soon as I get there. So he, he says, I believe all things written in the Jewish scriptures. Now look at the next thing he ties in together with them. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a what? A resurrection 
of the dead, both the just and the unjust. Do you see what Paul's doing here all along through the text? He's really amazingly confessing that he worships the same one true God as they do. Not only does he believe also the same inspired scriptures, but he also has the same hope in God that they do. You see that? He's tying them together. It's an amazing thing, brethren. They themselves. That there will be a resurrection from the dead for both the just and the unjust. Now, brethren, that word hope draws our attention. And it's not what you think it is. I hope it happens. I hope it does. I really hope it happens. No, brethren, let me give you the biblical definition of this word hope. It has nothing to do with shuddering and hoping and above all, above all things, that it happens. The word hope here means confidence in a future event. The highest degree of well-founded expectations, which are grounded, brethren, this is important, which are grounded, if you will, in substantial evidence. What is the evidence? What's the evidence that Paul has been presenting? Thank you very much. Howard raised his hand. The evidence is what? Brethren, listen, if, we're, if, if we get to this point and you don't know what it is, then I have not uh, communicated very well. It is what? The word of God. The word of God is the evidence. It's a stunning thing. Not only that, but there were many infallible proofs. But we see here, don't we, this evidence. Again, look at chapter 26 quickly, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish this up. Look there, if you would, again. Paul uses this same language standing again before Agrippa. Hope is not, oh, I hope so. Hope is being confident and understanding that what God says is going to come to pass because he said it. You can be a, well, look, I'm not trying to be unkind, but, you know. You remember when the promise keepers came out? I don't know if you guys remember that. Some of you are way too young. <laughs> you probably weren't born yet when that happened. I remember that. I remember the big, remember Wendy, the big flurry of the, the promise keepers. The promise keepers. There's only one who can keep all of his promises. And it ain't me. And it ain't you. In fact, one woman said, well, yeah, he went, my husband went to promise keeper and he took garbage out for three weeks and that was it. You've got to have the spirit of God working deeply in your heart and in your soul. Mm -hmm. You do. The spirit of God must be working. It's an amazing thing. Look what he says here in Acts chapter 26. He again says the same thing to Agrippa. Look what he says. Again, keeping in mind that it's the same scriptures. It's the same God. It's the same hope. It's the hope we have. Look what it says there. Verse, chapter 26. Look at verse number 6. And now I stand and am judged for what? The hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. You see that there? And it doesn't mean like I'm Seth's father. These are the men who are standing before him, accusing him. They are the fathers. They are the ones who have, down through the annals of time, been put in leadership places over the Jewish nation. Those fathers, my fathers, our fathers. That's what Paul has said. That's the language that he uses. And he says there, under which promise are 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. 
You see, that? that's the future thing. That's the, that's, the, that's the absolute promise that it's going to happen because God said it. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. What? Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should what? Raise the dead. And what's he standing there being accused? What's the debate? What's the issue? Look there at verse 21 of our text. What's the issue? Hey, King Agrippa, why do you think it's so strange that God would raise the dead? Look at our verse. Look at verse 21. That's what he's there. Verse 20, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question this day. So in other words, what we have here, brethren, is uh, we must have a whole bunch of Pharisees that are there. Because remember, Paul brought the resurrection up earlier, and what happened? A fight broke out. You know why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe it. The Pharisees did. Here, Paul's saying to them, you believe the same thing. It's the same hope. The same hope that I have. It's the same hope that we all have. Amen? The hope that God made to his fathers. Now look, i got to finish up, but let me give you the verses. This whole idea of resurrection, <laughs> this is something that's taught throughout the Jewish scriptures. Okay? Time and time and time again. Where do we first see a mention of resurrection in the Bible? It's not in the New Testament, brethren. It's prophesied, actually, in Genesis chapter 3. But actually, if you move ahead to Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham's offering up his son Isaac. Remember that? And the two men go with him on the donkey. It's just a type of Christ. It's a type of Christ. There's a donkey they ride on. There's two men that go with him. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mountain they look up on the third day. And, and Abraham sees it. And then what does he tell the two men that came with him? Do you remember what he said? He said this. Hey, uh, hold my, well, I'll, I'll give it our, our, our translation. Hey, you two men, hold the reins on my donkey here. I and the lad will be right back. You notice what he says there? I and the lad. What was he going to do? He was going to offer up his son Isaac. He was going to, to if you will, slay Isaac. And what does Abraham, or what does he say? You two hold this, this rein right here. I'm, me and the lad are going to go over there, and we'll come back together. What is that telling us? That Abraham believed in what? In the resurrection. You remember who these men claimed to be their father? Abraham. They're believing what Abraham believed. <laughs> he believed in the resurrection. It's a stunning thing. Isaiah believed in the resurrection. Job believed in the resurrection. Daniel believed in the resurrection. All of these Old Testament prophets. You know the ones that he just brought to their attention? All the prophets, all of these written things. Yeah, them, them ones. Is that a word? Those ones. Those ones that don't change. The word of God that doesn't change. And then the author of Hebrews, of course, gives us the inspired commentary on what was taking place in Genesis chapter 22. When he said this, right? He believed that God could what? Raise the dead. So this is what Paul is being accused of. I'm standing here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Both the just and the unjust. It's an amazing thing, the just. Let me just finish up here. What do I got left? A couple of texts. The just. Who are the just? The just are those brethren who have indeed believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have indeed been and had imputed to their account the righteousness of Christ. 
You understand that. That's who the just are. Because God does that. He imputes Christ's righteousness, his sacrifice, his merit to you who could never do what Christ did. Because I woke up this morning and sinned. He did not. He was perfect, sinless, every day, every minute, every thought, every action. He became your substitute. Like he, if you believe on him this morning, or you have, he's your substitute. You have been declared by God just. It's a stunning thing to consider that. That holy God would do that, but he did. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made what? The righteousness of Christ in God. What about the unjust? Well, if there's just, what about the unjust? Who are the unjust? Well, the unjust, of course, are those who are indeed trying to work their way to heaven. Thinking that some of the merit, some of the work that they've done, God might look at it and go, yes, I would certainly apply that. No, brother. No way. You know, I, gotta, I, gotta, I have to be finished up here. The unjust are those who will stand naked before the bema seat of Christ. They will stand there with their own filthy works, their own filthy rags, and they'll be judged according to the holiness of God. And brethren, you can't win. You know, if you sin once, <laughs> you're guilty of what? All of it. Brethren, you don't get extra credit. We, the Bible teaches nowhere. We got to finish, I know. This is why Paul had a good conscience, because he told the truth. The Bible teaches nowhere that you can make up for a sin that you've committed. You understand that? This isn't, you know, homeschool at our house where Wendy will say, hey, uh, if you do this extra paper over here, I'll give you extra credit. That doesn't happen biblically. You can't make up. Listen, even if you kept the law, you, you used the Lord's name in vain, which I did when I was lost. Clearly. It was a regular part of my speech. I lied. I stole. Right? This is what sinners do. And there's no way, if I stood before God, if I would have went to, to died and, 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 and been lost, I could not say to God, yeah, I know I stole that one time, but I never stole again. Because you don't get extra credit for never stealing again. You've only done what God has asked you to do. You don't get extra credit for that. What you need is God's grace, God's mercy, His atoning work, Christ's finished work. His blood applied. His merits applied. That's what makes you just. This is what Paul is saying. There's going to be a judgment. The just for the unjust. In fact, let's just finish there. Look at verse number 16. Paul was so faithful in, in his fidelity to God and to his word. Look at what he says in verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. What a great thing for a man to be able to say. Paul is speaking here of his conscience being clear first and foremost before God and then before all men. Because of his fidelity, as I've said to God and to his word, Paul's conscience is blameless. 
and it did not judge him before his fellow men. What the riot was about was not about what Paul did. It was about what they believed. They were the ones rioting. Paul's conscience is totally clear. All I did was stand before them and present unto them the gospel of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. This is what I did. And you know what? That means that my conscience is clear before who? God, and it's also clear before these men, completely blameless before them, because I'm simply being faithful to the word of God. Now, brethren, his confession of these truths before men were not offenses, but a soul-saving belief in the fulfillment of Israel's truth, ancient hit faith. That's what happened here. This is what Paul is trying to, to preach and, and as the Spirit of God works on them to see. Let me just close with this practical point this morning. As we look at Paul's defense, what should our own testimony of the gospel of Christ be before the world? We have to ask ourselves that. We've seen a lot of stuff here in our text. But what should our testimony of the gospel be? While we can learn a few things, we notice, first of all, that Paul was polite and respectful toward the powerful man that stood before him. But his words did not contain a hint of flattery. Brethren, this is something we learn out street preaching a lot. Where's Keith? There he is. Last summer when we were out street preaching and preaching in the park and all those, I mean, brethren, those crazy, rabid, baby-killing, whatever they were, were coming after us. And it was amazing, wasn't it, Keith? There's old independent fundamentalist Mike out there. Yeah! Repent, repent. It was just a, it was a wild madhouse. And then here comes Brother Keith, a couple of the other brothers. Hey, can we talk for a minute? I mean, the next day, wasn't it? The next day, it went so much smoother. They actually listened. The presentation must not be offensive. <laughs> because the gospel is in and of itself to them. But to have a conversation, amen, to be able to have a conversation. I grew up in the independent Baptist churches for the most part. And believe you me, none of that was there. There was no love for the most part. It was hell, fire, and brimstone, spewing out things, no love, no nothing, just an imbalance there. We have to have a balance, brethren. There is the fear of God. There is the judgment of God. There is these things, but there's also the love of God. The love of God that he would have for sinners such as I. It's an incredible thing to understand that. And yet Paul here, he was polite, he was calm, he was simply stating facts. This is what he did. This is something we can learn for sure. Here's the other thing. The words that he was speaking, as I said, were not full of flattery, but they were words of confidence and boldness, words of a man with a clear conscience. And this is what we as Christians should be. Paul really didn't concern himself too much with what Felix thought about him. Sometimes we have to put ourselves, we, we, we cannot worry too much about what people think about us, or it makes us weak. We will compromise. Even though he was standing before Caesar's bema seat, which is who he was, Caesar's bema seat, the judge, the governor of the city. You know what was more important to Paul? 
you know what concerned him more about standing before the governor or standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Christ being the seat. He wants to make sure, like we all should, that we've been faithful and we've had much fidelity to God's word, no matter what, no matter the cost. The only reason we should be concerned with the lost opinions is because we want to point them. This is what Paul's doing the whole time. We want to point them not to ourselves, but to what? To Christ, to his word, to that which never changes. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we, <coughs> again, are grateful for your word this morning, that which never changes. My emotions change. My thoughts change. There's all kinds of things that change on me. We open the word of God, and it again straightens us out. It keeps us straight. Father, we're so grateful for that this morning. 